Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Ice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop games that exist today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we're in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to dig into the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk to the people who create these games. Now, last year we had Hari, uh, one of the great Australian TOs, on to talk about Operation Sandstorm, which was a historically themed event being run at the Australian Armor and Artillery Museum. And man, did the pictures from that look absolutely sensational. Now, I have had people asking, hey, is that happening again? And honestly, I haven't been keeping up with all the news about Sandstorm. But then I started talking with this gentleman who is with me today about the next big bolt action event that will be happening at this wonderful venue filled with tanks. I mean, does it get any better than that for a bolt action event? And it is looking like a ripper as we say down here in Australia. And that, of course, is Operation Husky. But if we're going to talk about that, we need to talk to the TO for that event. Alex, from the Australian Armor and Artillery Museum, welcome to Cast Ice. How are you today, sir? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me along. It's a real pleasure. Man, it is a pleasure to have you on to talk bolt action. Uh, Just reading through the player pack, this looks like you've spent a lot of time trying to create an event to really capture the feel of a particular campaign slash series of battles in World War II. So many times in Bolt Action, when we talk about events, we talk about you know trying to create an even playing field for all players, but in a generalist sense. So every army pretty much works, so no one feels left out. The series of events that you guys have been running up at the Tank Museum have been really cool in that you are literally tailoring an event to a specific time and place in World War II. Um, This is a really cool series of events. How did this kick off? And leading into that, how did you get to Operation Husky as, uh, as the next big thing? So the first event that we did at the museum, so I've always been interested in wargaming, and I sort of got into bolt action by myself um, in probably a year year or so before COVID. Um, We had one of the the new staff start at the museum. His name's Curtis. He does all of our YouTube videos. Um, Mm -hmm. He's a massive miniatures fan. He mainly likes his Napoleonics, but World War II he gets a kick out of. Um, And we sort of got into it. And we really wanted to try to do events and things like that. So we did our first event, which was Operation Armor, uh, Operation Thunder, sorry. Yeah. And we did that back just before COVID became a really big problem. And it was a bit of a tricky mm-hmm. event. We had reduced numbers, everything else. But it was a great sort of stepping stone for us to go, hi, this is what we need to do to run an event. And yeah. the first thing that I felt when I played is I had a great time. But I'm looking at all these people who've poured all this love and energy into their armies. And it's not necessarily the effort involved in painting, but it's sort of, it feels like a step's been missed, you know? And I really love when you see 
people pour energy into their armies. Because especially with World War II, you know, when you go and build an army, you've gone and done the research, you've read about the battles they're fought in, you've read about the people, you've read about their campaign, you know. Mm-hmm. You're emotionally and invested within this force that you've built. Any war game, you're invested within them. But when you're invested in something and you put it on the table, I can think of nothing more rewarding than putting them on a table and against an army that is appropriate for them. Right. Like there's just something magical about putting down my winter fins on a winter table against winter Russians. You know, that just feels really special, you know, like Mm -hmm. everything sort of come together full round circle. And it just makes the effort that you've put into bringing this really, you know, it's a piece of you, your, your army that you're bringing along, you know, poured effort and love into it um it makes you sort of feel even more proud of it and more rewarded by it and it just makes the whole experience just really fun and interesting because you are playing against something that your guys would have seen you know 85 years ago or 80 years ago in the case of husky you know that's why we thought husky be a cool one because you know it's 80 years this year so we did sandstorm um and sandstorm was a great success everyone that came along had a really good time Mm-hmm. But the only issue that we have with Sandstorm is at the end we had two winners. We had an Alexis winner and an Allied winner. Actually, no, we didn't. We just had one overall winner and we had a second place. And um, that sort of stung me as well because I'm sort of like, well, you know, everyone was sort of backing each other up. You know, you've got the Allied players talking to each other on breaks and going, oh, you're versing him next. You know, he did this to me. You know, watch what he does. And they're sort of this team just grew automatically because everyone was playing mm-hmm. the same armies and they're like, Hey, your army looks cool. I'm playing this version of that army and you know, we should talk about it. And so I went, Hey, let's do an event that is both the historical of what we want and team based, not individual based. Mm-hmm. So, and I think this is going to be a winning combination for themed events. I mean, I've got no issue with, you know, you, you build an army, you build it the best you can points wise, meta wise, you bring it along and you have a, you know, competitive, you know, I am all about the sweat sometimes. I, I get a bit sweaty and I'm all for a good sweaty game. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I really do enjoy playing something historical. I mean, yeah. it, it's a historical war game. It, it's a beer and pretzels game. It's not, you know, a two fat lardies game where you spend, you know, your entire Sunday playing it. But exactly. it's you if you're playing something that has a theme and a setting, I think it's even more fun if you keep to that theme and setting. So that's why we've decided to go the way we've gone with Husky. That's cool. Yeah, I love the sound of that. Now you said something earlier, and I want to clarify for those listening. Now, of course, there are lots of podcasts out there that talk about the WTC format, the the World Team Championship, where each nation puts together a a team of champions and they battle um, in a team event where they get together. And but it's not historically based. It's very much a what armies are you going to bring and you're going to face off against other people and you try and align your armies versus their armies to get the best possible matchups. History has nothing to do with it. This yeah. is a, a team event, but your teammates are the people who are taking the same or similar similar national rules. Am I getting that right? Yep, exactly. So the ally, sorry. So explain the three teams because so we know I got, got access and allies, but is it Germans, Italians? So this is going to be the fun part. So Operation Husky 
when it first happened was the first major allied coordinate. Like they they done a little bit in Algeria and stuff like that of, you know, Americans and Commonwealth forces working together, but not to a large, substantial, you know, operational planning stage like Sicily. Husky was a whole new, brave new world when it came to multinational combined arms, um, universal command structures. And when they went ashore, the Americans were sort of supposed to loiter around, hold the flank, let the Brits and the Canadians push up and um, take the the coast all the way up to the northeastern tip of Sicily and block mm-hmm. the Germans and the Italians from retreating. And the Americans are sitting around. And uh, I don't know if you know much about uh, Americans, but they don't really like to sit around. And nope. uh, the problem was, is the American general, uh, he had the name uh, of George Patton. And he really didn't like to sit around, especially when, yeah, he he really didn't like it. So um, he kept badgering the British going, I want to push, I want to push, I want to push. And eventually he got permission to do a organized reconnaissance in force within limits. Those are the words, some of the words are about that. It was an organized, it was a reconnaissance. He was allowed to go do a reconnaissance. And so what that meant to Patton's brain was, let's go pelt melt up the entire coastline all the way to the opposite tip of Sicily and then drive back across the island, pretty much take about 50% of the landmass of the island in the course of a matter of weeks. He just went, just went complete blitz all the way across the island. Um, it caused issues on the British side as well, because, you know, they're sitting there and they're, pushing through fortified towns and mountains and the Americans are just running all over the place. Very annoying to the British commanders and made them feel very, you know, inferior. Um, so it started this sort of rivalry thing that you'll, you'll sort of see going through Italy, but it sort of gets resolved by the time we get to Normandy. Um, but that's something we wanted to put into this event. You know, the Americans, you know, they're not shooting at you, but you know, they're, they're performing, in a way that's making you feel a bit inferior. So the British are going to want to one-up them and the Americans are going to want to one-up the British. So we have the defending team of 10, which is Axis and Germans mixed. And then we have the American team of five and the British Canadian team of five. Nice. I like it. I like the the competition of the allied sides. Uh, vying yeah, it's like a rivalry. Yeah. Because you're not shooting at the Americans but you want to shoot the Italians harder. So you do better than the Americans. I love it. So how does that play out on the, on the actual, the event itself? How many linked so, games are we going here? What kind of missions, how are you bringing this all together on the tabletop? So, so this is a really fun uh, experience. So each team, when they get there on the first day, um, so it's a six game event over two days because we mm-hmm. can open the museum late because we're staff. So we'll actually get to see the museum in twilight, which is actually a very different, you know, way to see it. It's got a completely different feel. Um, tanks look different in suboptimal light, and it, they're really a lot more intimidating. Um, mm-hmm. So that's going to be really fun. But when they, everyone gets there, they'll assemble into their teams. So your 10 axis and your two groups of five for the allied countries. And they will actually have an anonymous vote between themselves to elect their commander-in-chief. Mm-hmm. So... You've got one commander-in-chief for each team, and we have 10 tables that are all set up with terrain, ready to go. Um, a lot of terrain, actually, we just bought, oh, I think it was about 400 pound worth of Sarissa terrain. So we've got to build all that tomorrow, which is very exciting. <laughs> so wow. much MDF. So much yeah. MDF. 
So we're going to have all the tables set up. They're going to look beautiful. We have some really lovely tables in mind. Uh, I've got a 3D printer going full pelt, printing off Waco gliders. Um, there's just going to be some really impressive tabletops, which we're excited about. But we're going to have, we have a local guy that does laser cutting, and we're going to laser cut a whole bunch of um, tokens or cards. They're MDF mm -hmm. cards. One side will be blank, and the other side will have writing on it as you'd expect with a card. So each table will have a number and we have a campaign board which shows the army's positions on Sicily. Going left to right, you'll have 10 battlefields. Mm -hmm. um, so American and British, and they'll change randomly each battle phase. So the same army's unfolding in the same tables over and over again. Yeah. And then what we have is, is we have the 12 missions from the Bolt Action Rulebook, because, mm -hmm. you know, if they, if they aren't that broke, why not fix them? Why fix them? Mm -hmm. And we'll have them engraved on chits. And those chits will be placed face down, a face up randomly on each of the 12 tables, or 10 tables. So we'll have two spares each time, but that's fine. So completely random mission assignment to each table. And then the commanders will allocate their players based on the terrain that they can see and the mission type. Ah, I like it. That's nice. And when they choose their tables or their, their players for their tables, they put the player's name on their MDF card face down. So let's say I'm the commander for the the defenders and you're the commander for the Americans. I see a table I think would be really good for my one of my parachute guys because he's got lots of parachutists in trucks, lots of SMGs. Be good to run up, grab objectives. It's going to make it impossible to hold. But he doesn't have much anti-tank. You could then see that table and go, okay, I think he's going to put that Italian player with the parachutist on it. He's mm -hmm. put down an Italian player because I can see that it's an Italian player by the by the blank face. It'll have like the Italian flag on it. Mm -hmm. And then you can go, okay, I'm going to put that. I think it's going to be that guy. So I'm going to put my guy with mechanized rangers there with lots of mechanized infantry, Sherman, you know, and uh, a Greyhound armored car. And I know that list is going to perform very well against the Italians. And so that way you've got sort of the commanders playing mind games, trying to figure it out. And the commanders also will have the ability to allocate off-table support to the tables. So, for example, they can go to the Italian player, one of their Italian players. Let's say he's not as good as the others and he needs a helping hand. He can allocate that player. Um, one of the options is going to be the, um, what's it called in the partisan rules? Um, the demolition charges that you deploy oh. pre-game. Nice. So he's going to be able to allocate some of those to that commander because he goes, well, you need a helping hand. And then if he's got a really good player, he's not going to give them any help So because right. they're performing well. So that way we get an automatic balancing as well because you want all your players to succeed because you are a team. So you're going right. to give support to the players that need it the most. So you get this automatic balancing and you also get this cool, fun extra element where you as the commander can help out players or choose not to help players based off whatever situation you have put them in. So I'm waiting for the round where a commander gets told off by one of his generals that uh, you've put my army on a really crap table. I, I don't like what you've done to me. How dare you? <laughs> which is going to be mm -hmm. quite funny, I think. But it's just a whole other element, which we think is really cool because, you know, there's no set mission pack. You don't know what you're going to go up against, you know. Yeah. You can tailor your list to... And that's what we see with some events, you know, when they pre-publish the mission pack. Mm -hmm. um, people know what they're going to play. They're going to bring a list that suits those missions. 
But with this, your commander is assigning you a mission. So you've got to talk to your commander, tell your commander what your army is going to be best at, and then your commander is going to make the decision whether or not you fight on that table. Yeah, and if you're running the actual rulebook missions, all 12 of them, I mean, that is a real mixed bag. So you're going to be seeing exactly. all kinds of missions that, you know, I think most of them are objective-based, but still they are very, very different. So you do need to, uh, you can't just take the same type of army for all of them and expect to be exactly. successful. Exactly. You know, if you if you build a, a you know, a multi-tool to do as many of those as possible, you're still not going to be able to cover them all. Yeah. You know? And if you are, it's not going to be optimally. Like, um, if you're an army that's designed to go snatch and grab a, a top secret objective and get off the table with it, that's great. But your army might not be really good at, you know, standing and, you know, doing a kill for kill points like a no man's land or meeting engagement. Yeah. You know, you might really struggle with that. So nice. Well, let's talk about how we're actually going to get this on the table. So this is a yep. 1,000 point event. So every one of the players is bringing a 1,000 point army. Now, clearly we are leaning historical. So as this is the battle for Sicily and the Italians were reinforced by the Germans, on the Allied side, as you said, we have um, six American players. And then on the other side of that, we have- uh, Five. Oh, sorry. Uh, five. Don't know why I said six. Sorry, five American players. I'm thinking 12 missions. And then five yeah, same. That's Canadian what I did British. <laughs> Right. So yep. five Canadian British uh, forces and that's the allied side. And then on the other side, we have 10 Axis armies in the form of Germans and Italians um, yep. for this event. Um, and we'll get into the national rules in just a second. Um, but you can take no more than two flamethrowers of any kind. Um, yep. No naval observers or special characters may be taken for this event. Um, but there is a stipulation about the types of units that you can take given the date of the event and when it takes place and time. Um, can you yeah. talk us through that? So unfortunately, I actually wrote April, which is not the right month <laughs> for Sicily. And I'm very upset at myself for doing that. Um, it should say July. So July 1943, because that's when Sicily kicked, uh, Husky kicked off. And the idea behind that is that we want you to bring stuff that was there. You know, right. that we do have a little bit of wiggle room. Like M3, Lees and Grants, we're on Sicily as command vehicles, which meant that the main gun was removed. They put in a dummy gun and they used it as a command vehicle for armoured squadrons. But at the same time, you know, we'd let you take that as a normal M3, Lee or Grant because it's not that much of a stretch. Um, we've right. had a player go, hey, I want to bring Churchills. And we've been talking about that. And we think we're probably going to allow it because they were in service at that time and mm -hmm. they weren't and they were in north africa ready to go and um montgomery said no i don't want them they're too slow mm -hmm. this will be done in two weeks we don't need churchills <laughs> which turned Surprise. out to be a bit of a mistake yeah, yeah it exactly. was a bit of a mistake but that's you know that's within the bounds of reason um it's another reason why we've allowed um panzer Shrek, panzer faust 30s because mm -hmm. they were in production from spring, and I've had a big argument with someone over this. They're in production from spring. Officially, they didn't reach frontline units until the Eastern Front in like August, mm -hmm. October 1943. But there are three different sets of historical records that indicate that 82nd Airborne found some on Sicily. And then there's also photographic evidence of a Sherman that looks like it's been hit by a Panzerfaust. 
on Sicily, near Messina, I think. So, and on top of that, there were units of elements of the Hermann Goering division, which was present, that were in Germany um, doing training before they got rushed down to Sicily to join the rest mm -hmm. of the unit. And I personally, with the research I've done, think that they've, they've sort of gone off to the training ground, they've tried them, and they've gone, hey, we're going to chuck a couple of crates of these in the back of the truck and we're going to take them with us because they're pretty cool toys. Yeah. So we're, we're keeping it flexible, um, but not completely rigid. But if someone tries to bring a kin tiger in 1943, I'm going to be very upset. Exactly. Well, also, I mean, that's why you've dropped the range, for example, of the Panzerfaust from its usual range to six inches, because yeah. those early Panzerfaust in particular had a much smaller load. And yeah. while that might mean a lower armor penetration, and I know that's how sometimes people think about it, it, it really did reduce its effective range. So I think yeah. the drop of a range is a really nice compromise of keeping it's keeping the rule change there simple and effective, and you know exactly what it does. Uh, exactly. And actually, the, the range thing is in the name. So the reason why they were called Panzerfaust 30, 60, exactly. 100 was the meters of effective maximum range. Mm-hmm. So Kleinfaust has a maximum, a maximum, mind you, effective range of 30 meters before it's just going to nosebore into the ground and not hit anything. Exactly. And uh, for you Americans at home, 30 meters is roughly six inches. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> not, re not really for the tabletop, but we need to come up with a way to sort of represent that these aren't as good. You know, I know. I'm so that way the German terrible joke. I apologize. <laughs> so the German players can bring their toys that they love but they're yeah. not as good as they remember them being. Well, let's talk about some of the other German rules. Uh, the Germans also get Tiger Fear as written for this event, um, which isn't always the case in some Australian events, but well, it, it only it, um, applies to Tigers. And as you said, yeah. that's Tiger One's kids um, and no <laughs> other vehicle. Yeah. So that's because you did have a lot of Tigers on Sicily with Hermann Goering. And ti a Tiger at 1,000 points is a bit of a squeeze. It's a bit of a squeeze in it a 1,000 point event. Is. So, I mean, it's taking a, over a third of your army, probably more like two fifths. You're almost at half. Um, that's a Especially big Especially when you factor in one of the other rules that you put in for the Germans on this, which is called a hardy force, which is German lists may not include more than two inexperienced German units in their army. Exactly. So you're not going to have someone trying to fill up all their slots with chaff troops to try squeezing that tiger and still have lots of water ice on the table. So if you take a tiger, you are limiting yourself. But we wanted to give that back with keeping tiger fear to just sort of make it like less of a bad decision. So you can take it and be on theme, really enjoy yourself and not get completely ruined by the removal of tiger fear. Yeah, exactly. And you also yeah. have one other rule here, which is coordinated defense, which means any German list may select a single Italian unit of any kind uh, in their army without the need uh, for a force organization slot. Now, you do pay points yeah. for it, Kit, so you're not getting a free unit. However, no, it does free. give you the option for a free additional unit if you want to take an additional tank, you want to take an additional armored car. Um, if you already have that slot filled, this doesn't take that up, right? No, exactly. So you can you can bring an extra armored vehicle support. I had a guy, but some people aren't going to do that. I've got a guy that's already submitted his list. Um, he's taking 
Italian engineers with double flamethrowers. Mm-hmm. Which, which is very, very vicious. But that's, yeah. you know, he's decided to go that way with his Italian slot because he thinks it's very on theme because his army is based around uh, an airfield defense unit. Mm-hmm. And it's very on theme, you know, Italian engineers. It's pretty cool. Um, they're a new model, and he wanted an excuse to grab them and paint them up, and I think that's mm-hmm. awesome. I wanted to implement this rule for two reasons. Um, the primary reason is I got sent uh, an early copy of Company of Heroes 3, and I've been playing the hell out of it the last couple mm-hmm. of weeks, and this is a big thing because the Italians don't have their own factions. Every time I'm playing as the Germans, I'm constantly calling in Italian vehicles and Italian troops. I actually enjoy them more than the Germans, which is pretty sad. But <laughs> um, so that's mm-hmm. the primary reason it's in the front of my head. But the other is that um, in real life on Sicily, um, the Germans operated in close support with Italian units very regularly. Um, in particular, the Bersaglieri um, and even the parachutists, the Germans would actually form Kampfgruppers with Italians integrated within them. Um, because the Bisaglieri were motorized on their motorbikes or on trucks. So the Germans could use them with, because the Germans didn't have their transports. They didn't arrive in time. So on paper, they should have had a whole um, reconnaissance company with 251 half-tracks and 250 half-tracks, but there's no photographic proof that they ever got there. Um, And they were critically short of working trucks and spares. So the Italians were supplying the fast mobile light infantry and the Germans were supplying the tanks to back them up, which is quite interesting because you don't really see that at any other point of the war. Um, And then on top of that, there's a very famous engagement where uh, the Semivente 9053s, have you ever seen one of those, the big monsters? Not in person, but I have the model. But you have the model, so you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. And... And uh, there was a there was a company of oh, no three of those I'm not sure what the designation was for them three of those in the armored ammunition carrier command vehicle, mm-hmm. and they were on top of a hillside and Hermann Goering had to pull out part of their regiment because they were getting cut off, and they were getting pursued up a valley by British Sherman tanks and these three Simaventos sat up the top of a hill for about six hours pummeling the British and forcing the British to stop their their chase of the Germans mm-hmm. and allowed the Germans to escape. Um, and the commander actually won a Knight's Cross for that with Oak Leaves. Yeah. I mean, that those are big, dirty guns. And to have three they of are... them on a top would be ugly to face, to yes. run your armor into. I really want to see a German player bring one of those along in support of his, in support of his army. I'd really... If someone does that, I'll be very proud because that's a lot of points. It is put on the Italian unit and then a lot of points for all their other stuff. But if someone can pull it off, I'd be really proud to see it on a table. It would look really good. It would look really good. Um, But let's talk about the Italians now. Now, what you've done with the national rules there is really interesting. Now, I'm not I'm not being controversial in the least when I say that one of the things that bolt action players talk about universally is the sort of bemoaning the Italian national rules. Now, what you've done is you've kind of taken the national rules from the actual Armies of book, the Soft Underbelly book, and the Western Desert book, and you've kind of mixed and matched them all together to create something (laughs) that fits Sicily. So let's talk about these. So the national rules for Italy for this event, 
you have the defensive strategy out of armies of Italy and the Axis, which is they get um, D3 use of um, heavy cover that they can deploy on the tabletop. Are you saying that they get that every game or the no, usual? No, so they, they, they get it as per the rules, which is they okay. get it if they're a defender in an attacker defender scenario. Yeah, there you go. Um, you also have the Iron Hearts, Iron Hulls rule, which is um, all armored vehicles. Um, well, sorry, we actually had to all specify armored... armored vehicles because it, Iron Hearts, Iron Hulls is in the Western Desert book, but they didn't actually give that rule to any units. They put the rule right? in the book, but then they forgot to add it to the unit entries. Yeah, that's been noticed before. So <laughs> what, what, what does that rule do? Well, the idea behind it is that the Italian crews were the tank crews were bloody brave. They were they were really really brave. They weren't cowards. Um, uh, I think it was Arietti at the Second Battle of El Alamein. The Germans pull out. They just went nut. We're going, and they booked yep. it most of the time in stolen Italian trucks because they took all the trucks off the Italians, and they just booked it. Left behind the Folgor, uh, left behind Arietti, and a, a couple of other units. They mainly just hung all the Italians out and just left. Mm -hmm. And German command tried to radio in with um, Arietti. I think it was about two days after the battle. It sort of petered out and that Germans had started to pull out. And um, Arietti responded by saying, we're down to six tanks. We're counterattacking. You know, yeah. they're, they're brave souls. If you look at the Italian army in World War II, you look at the tankers. They were brave. And mm -hmm. even on Sicily... You had companies of R-35s going up against paratroopers, American paratroopers with bazookas, and even their 37mm guns that just tore holes in them, but they still directly charged at the US paratroopers to give their infantry the opportunity to come up. Um, and some of them were serving in tanks that were, you know, from the 1920s, yeah. and they still performed quite admirably. So we wanted to put that in here. It's sort of like a little homage to them and to give the Italians something positive in their rules because right now they don't have any positive rules like if you we I had this discussion with someone a little while ago but if you defensive strategy is good but it's very situational it is um like 50 percent of the missions you play out of the rule book it does not have an effect because it has to be an attacker defender scenario but if you look at every single army national rules that warlord has ever put out Okay, some of them are just useless, like the Poles getting fanatical officers. That doesn't help, you know, but it's not a negative rule. The Italians are the only country with a negative rule, with the exclusion of the communications breakdown for the British and the Belgians, but no one uses that. Everyone forgets like about French. it first. <laughs> yeah, but the French have, you know, free artillery. The Belgians have, you know, mm -hmm. mobilized reserves. You know, they have some nice rules to balance out. The French and just bars. get one yeah. really... Yeah, and bars. I love bars. The French, the the Italians, they just get one really nasty, horrible rule that never works because Italian units are cheap. You get more Italian units unless you play hyper-veteran, which is what we see. Um, and because of that, the enemy is going to quite quickly kill two more of yours than them than theirs. And then, boom, mm -hmm. neg two, everything in the entire... Neg three, I think it is, morale for the entire army. Good luck passing a single order check. You won't. So we wanted to have a little bit of that feel because the Italians were a bit, you know, morale-wise, their officers sometimes couldn't keep the men from running away. So we kind of wanted that feel, but we didn't want it to be so extreme 
So what we've done is we've included defeat after defeat followed by defeat, which is the new version of that Avanti Savoia rule mm -hmm. that's in the Armies of Italy book that they've introduced in Soft Underbelly. And I think when they redo the Italy army rules, when they redo it, that's the rule they're going to use because it is much more moderate. There's no positive benefits for killing more enemies than you've lost, but the morale bone, uh, the morale loss is only a negative one instead yeah. of a negative three, which is a lot more moderate and it's workable. It's definitely something you don't want to happen, but it's not as extreme. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's shift to the Allied side, where yes. if we look at the U.S., no rule changes. <laughs> U.S. has it. <laughs> well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's talk British. Now, the British retain their existing national rules listed in their army book. They may also take one uh, of the below listed Commonwealth national characteristics instead of a generic characteristic. These include guards and Irish only. Um, yep. So commando airborne theme forces may take an air observer, uh, air observer with two uses like the Americans um, instead of their free artillery observer. I'm guessing that that has more to do with um, history and less to do with uh, force selectors from a book. Yes, so that's more to do with history, um, especially when you look at the British Paris when they went into Sicily. Um, a lot of the time when they dropped in, they were, well, especially the initial drops, their aircraft got shot to hell by all of the naval vessels um, because they didn't recognize the aircraft. They thought they were Italian bombers. That's why in D-Day, you see those big white stripes on all the C-47 mm -hmm. wings. Recognition stripes so that the that so that the ships don't shoot at their own aircraft. <laughs> Very smart. That was a lesson from mm -hmm. Husky. So um, when they did land, a lot of the time the only support they could get was air support because the naval support was too focused on protecting the beachheads. Um, especially in the first couple of days, there were massive counterattacks that pushed the Americans in particular all the way back to their beaches, pretty much. They were like hanging on by their fingernails. Um, and direct fire naval support was the only thing that stopped them from getting rolled all the way back into the ocean. Um, so the naval support was too busy. Um, what land-based support had got on land was too busy, you know, fighting the battle right in front of it rather than trying to help, you know, the paras that are all the way over there and are not our problem, with some exceptions. So mm -hmm. we wanted we wanted it to feel a bit more like the paras operating as their own creature. You can bring the artillery observer if you want. That We're not disallowing it it's an option um so you can play your armies in your your paras the ground forces have linked up you've got a sherman in tow you know you, you can play it like that mm -hmm. or we've got a guy who wants to bring sorry he wants to bring naval marines commandos naval yeah. commandos and he wants to bring them as a strike force which is what happened the british would dump um commandos and special forces units up the coast sort of a day or two um north of the advance and the commandos would rush inland grab the bridge and wait for the armor to meet them mm -hmm. and then as soon as they were relieved they went back out to the boat and they went to the next bridge and they kept doing that all the way up the coast so he wants to bring a commando force that's focused around that you know he wants to have you know some captured italian trucks and um all commandos all infantry maybe a, a captured italian light tank and mm -hmm. he wants air support because that's what they had to deal with yeah so it's an it's an option there for people to play in a new way 
that's theme appropriate for their force without mm -hmm. it being any kind of game breaking. Because I know a lot of people will prefer to take an artillery observer with one use rather than air support because they're worried about hitting themselves in the head mm -hmm. with the air support. But it gives them that narrative flexibility for their army. Yeah, definitely. Well, the last uh, sorry, allied force is the Canadians. Now, the Canadians in this event must use the tough old, sorry, tough as boots Commonwealth national characteristic. They may also take the dogged, uh, which is the stubborn special rule, at one point per infantry model in the army. Um, new Canadian special rule also apply to all Canadian units, which is green and ready. All units, vehicles, and armor included, after the first shooting attack is made against them, roll a dice. On a one, the unit suffers two additional pins and goes down. On a two through four, there is no effect. And on a five through five up, sorry, five or six, it upgrades in veteracy one level. Inexperienced to regular, regular to veteran. All Canadian units must be taken as inexperienced or regular. Um, that is a very interesting restriction for a Canadian listing. Um, can you tell us why that is there? So when the Canadians were incorporated in the, the planning for Sicily, the British initially didn't want to include them because the Canadians hadn't fought, um, or these, these Canadian units hadn't fought. The Canadian armies in general had only really fought at Singapore at that point when it fell, and Hong Kong when it fell, and at Dieppe where they failed. So the British had no confidence in the Canadians at all, um, mm. which was quite unfortunate. So they didn't want to include them. Because as far as they were concerned, every single action the Canadians were involved in, they lost. So the Canadian Prime Minister actually petitioned Winston Churchill to have them included. And it was a specific request from the Canadian government. So they were included. Um, and a lot of the time when they got there, there are some occurrences where, because it was their first you know, major operation, um, there were issues where Canadian units or individuals, you know, there was a degree of cowardness under fire which is understandable you know you're getting shot at you know yeah. and, and it was very isolated but it did happen um, a little bit more than the british units they were fighting alongside but at the same time there's tales of real heroism and bravery mm -hmm. from those same canadian units who you know it's their first time in action and they perform absolutely outstanding feats of bravery um, and arms against yeah. the italians and against the germans so we wanted to have green in there which from which was a given. Um, we wanted to give green to the regulars and the inexperienced. But we have toyed with the idea of giving it to vehicles too. Now, we, when we were doing the playtesting and talking to a few people about it, they expressed concerns that um, with transports and, as you'll, we'll talk about later, we've changed the rules for open-top vehicles when it comes to pinning, mm -hmm. but that that is not a concern because um, that only applies to armoured vehicles that are open-topped. With the pinning that's changes right. um so that's that's not a concern with trucks and transports that are soft skin um but their concern is that let's say you're facing germans but at the end of the first turn the germans have shot at everything and everything's jumped up in veterancy you know or the vast majority has um and my response to that would be yes that could happen but if you're a German general and you're playing the Canadians and you know that the Canadians could, you know, explode with potential um, with each unit you target, it's going to cause you to play differently and think tactically, isn't it? Because you're going to mm. go, okay, these guys are interesting. We, they, it could go bad, but it's more likely it's going to go good for them. So maybe we 
approach them in a different way than we would a normal army. You know, maybe we keep them sort of at arm's distance, we focus on a unit and we see what it does, and then we can change our battle plans accordingly. Yeah. And I think that's going to add a really fun new dynamic when fighting against the Canadians for the Axis players, because we want the Axis players to feel like they're not just fighting the same armies over and over again. And, you know, the British are the British and the Americans are the Americans. So we wanted something that was a touch different to make them mm -hmm. feel like it was a unique opponent rather than just a, an offshoot of the British. So yeah, we did it for a bit, bit for flavor and a bit because we don't want our Axis players getting bored because they're fighting the same two armies over and over again, which is US and British. Even though there's a little bit of variation, like US Rangers, we've already got a list for. US Parries, we've got a list for. Um, and obviously we've got the British, the Naval Commandos, and we've got an infantry list for the British as well. So there's a bit of variation within it, but even then, we want to try, make the Canadians their own unique thing and feel very different to play. Yeah, definitely. Well, speaking of a unique way of playing, there are some event rule changes for this event, um, some of which line up to what happened at Sandstorm last year, and some of it line up to what was being played at CanCon this year. Um, yeah. If you're thinking about coming to this event, it is a slightly different version of Bolt Action than what you might be used to. Um, some of the rules are pretty straightforward and understandable. A little, uh, Some of the other ones do significantly change things. Um, I'll start at the top and work my way down. Um, we have suppression, which is infantry, medium machine guns, and heavy machine gun teams get an additional automatic point of suppression on non-vehicle targets. So if they hit, they can do two points of, or sorry, two pins rather than one. Um, combine that with squad support weapons, which means the first LMG purchased by any squad is 10 points rather than 20 and sustained fire, which means HMGs get an additional shot when shooting. Um, do you want to add anything to that? So we'll, we'll tackle, tackle these machine gun changes before we move through, mm. um, with suppression, um, in real life, a lot of the time, these weapons weren't designed to be killers. You know, they, right. they're designed to kill people, obviously. But the main objective with, let's say, MG34, MG42, you're firing a thousand, you have the capacity to fire thousands of rounds a minute. You know, you don't need that many bullets to, you know, kill someone. You need that many bullets to suppress the enemy force in front of you, suppress your fire. So, and we feel like the bolt action rules sort of don't really encapsulate that weight of fire that these designated teams are throwing down range at enemy units. And we also feel that from a gameplay perspective, it sort of gives them more value because if you ever run a machine gun team, you know what happens when a sniper hits it and kills a model. The whole team's removed because sniper will prioritize or will pick the target to be the gun uh, and the whole team is removed from play because it's a critical exactly. hit. So it gives you a slightly more of an incentive to play it from a points and balance perspective, which is not what we're trying to really do with these rules. We're just trying to make things feel a little bit more on point as well um, and sort of bring that historical um, flavor of when you shoot, everyone goes down. I mean, if you've ever been shot at, you're going to go straight to the ground. <laughs> if you hear yeah. something, or if you had MG32 and you, you can just hear it sounds like someone's tearing paper and that noise, you just hit the deck. Um, you, you don't want to weapons. be on the receiving end of that. No, no, definitely not. 
with squad support weapons, um, LMGs, especially with Americans, there's no... I personally, if I was playing Americans, wouldn't take an LMG at 20 points. I don't see the point. My rifles can move and shoot with no movement penalty. Um, I'm going to be up in your face anyway. So why do I want an LMG? Um, but for Husky, um, there are no BARs for the Paras. They didn't get any BARs. So we wanted... And on top of that, when we played it at Sandstorm, we saw an increase in squad support weapons taken, which mm-hmm. is a flavor thing because, you know, there were squad LMGs. They were a big thing. So mm-hmm. flavor-wise, it was really good. It was nice to see the models on the tabletop. And um, we just thought it was just a nice rule to sort of make the lists a little bit cleaner, if, yeah. if that's the nicest way to put it. A bit hard to explain. Um are thinking there, but we, we feel it worked really well. Um, we didn't like what KenCon did with um, a free one if the squad was max, because that doesn't work for a lot of units, especially yeah. when the units are nine-man squad or an eight-man squad, just doesn't work. So we thought 10 points for the first machine gun. So if you want to take two machine guns in a squad, that's fine, but it's going to cost you 30 points because mm-hmm. we didn't want to see what we saw at Sandstorm, which was there were 10 points full stop because we saw people bring veteran squads with double LMGs, and then that right. became a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we saw five-man squads with two LMGs sitting in the back corner up on a up on a height, just throwing shots out everywhere and holding an objective. So mm-hmm. we didn't want to see that. So we think the 10 points for the first purchase is a good way to round that out. Mm-hmm. And then sustained fire, um, heavy machine guns fire an extra shot. Um, we did that because heavy machine guns, not very potent, we find, um, in bolt action and even then the only people that sort of get heavy machine guns are the americans and most of the time there is a pintle mount mm-hmm. so if you've got a pintle mount and you shoot that pintle mount you're opening yourself up to being pinned by small arms which we'll get to later so we wanted to sort of give a little bit more of a reason to take a heavy machine gun because they look really cool on the model and we always get people making daka 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 noises mm-hmm. when they shoot the 50 cal. So we wanted to see them. Yeah, you're, it's always good to see Ma Deuce on the tabletop. Um, exactly. Well, let's talk about what you just mentioned, which is the steady cruise rule, which means that yep. open top vehicles that are armored, not soft skin, armored. Yes, open that was top something vehicles. we wanted to make very clear. <laughs> it's armored yeah. vehicles only. If they are to take pins from small arms fire, so like rifles, pistols, SMGs, not a weapon that has an armored penetration value. So HMGs do not count because they, of course, have an armored penetration of one. Um, For inexperienced vehicles, they take the pins as usual. If it's a regular crew on a four up, they ignore the pin. And if they're veteran, they ignore small arm fire completely. Um, again, that was run at CanCon this year. I think it was possibly run at Sandstorm last year from memory. No, no, CanCon nope. was the first time it was run that okay. I've heard of. But it is not combined with the rule that was also run at CanCon, which was that soft skin vehicles were destroyed if hit by a heavy weapon on a two up without rolling on the yeah. armor penetration chart. So this yeah. is different. This is just yes. the open-topped armored vehicles and transports slot, not the soft skin counterpart. So it's sort of pushing them forward. Because if you think about World War II, of course, this is the argument that's been put forward countless times over the years by bolt-action players. You think World War II, you think 
squad-based machine guns and you think half tracks and armored transports and slash, you know, you know, cool vehicles with giant guns on top, but are open on top and then back. Um, yeah. So this encourages the rules that you're laying out, encourage both of those things to be taken by players more so than the usual bolt action rules would indicate. We also have an interesting rule in here. Um, kill shot, which is veteran snipers have a plus one to hit enemy models. The ones always fail. So with we, well, we may as well talk about well honed precision as well because it's in the same kind of ballpark. So these are our two sort of controversial rules that we've mm -hmm. had a bit of discussion over. So I'll let you talk about well honed. Well honed precision is hand in hand with that. If you take so before when I was talking about kill shot, it's only veteran snipers get plus one to hit, and veteran mortars and artillery. Um, that are firing indirectly get a plus one to hit as well. Um, because as has been also said over the years, uh, veteran mortar and artillery men can always were much better at hitting things than inexperienced ones. And this takes into account for that. Um, am I, am I hitting that nail on the head? Yeah, exactly. So we, we initially had a different idea for kill shot. We thought, um, well, have you ever talked to a sniper? Have you ever have you ever had a conversation with one and you ask them, you know, where do they aim? I have not. Because no. I, I've met a few um, over the years with my job, so I've obviously bumped into a couple. And I had a really interesting conversation with one of them who was the um, sniper instructor down at Jungle Warfare Centre down in Tully in Queensland. Mm. Um, he spent a bit of time there, but he was a sniper instructor before, marksman instructor. And he said that, because I was talking about, I think, Enemy at the Gates, funnily enough, and we're talking about that. And he goes, I hate sniper movies. And I go, why? And he goes, because they always show people aiming for the head. Mm -hmm. And that's something interesting that I never thought about. And then he also went on to explain that um, snipers who were well-versed and well-drilled um, also were very skilled at pinning squads in place rather than just inflicting kills mm -hmm. because let's say you're in a you're a battlefield situation you are as the sniper you can see a let's say a platoon of infantry moving forward to try to get to the front line let's say in stalingrad there's a platoon of germans moving up to take positions to block or assist german force on the front line two blocks away you as the russian sniper could kill a couple of germans and then vanish Mm -hmm. Or you could kill one German, maybe even none, and pin that entire unit in place while your comrades beat through the German position because they don't have reinforcements. Which is more important on the battlefield situation? You know, yeah. one or two Germans compared to being able to break through. So we wanted to we wanted to put that feeling that snipers were scary. If you're in a unit of a squad of troops walking down the street and a sniper started to ping off at you and you had no idea where the shots were coming from, you'd be terrified. You'd be down to the ground. You'd be hugging cover behind anything that was solid enough to stop a bullet. And so we wanted to put that in there for that reason. Um, and we also wanted to put that in there because with snipers and with, vet, uh, with snipers and mortars and artillery, uh, when it comes to indirect fire, I can personally, from a gameplay perspective, a flavor, if I'm taking a US para army, I want veteran snipers because they're wearing para uniforms. Mm -hmm. But there is no 
personally no tangible reason why I would pay the extra 15 points to increase their survivability slightly and their potential for order passing when that unit's going to be hiding right up the back corner of the map up in a very tall building if I can help it and it's bit, probably not going to get shot at for the entire game so why would I pay that extra 15 points because it's unfair for me to have to just pay just so I can keep my army on the theme so we wanted to do that there for the people who are taking the veteran armies, you know, and also to give you a reason to take a veteran sniper more than just that little bit of extra survivability. And with the veteran mortars and artillery firing indirect, indirect, not direct, because we had someone get really excited and go, oh, does that mean my light howitzer can hit your targets on a two plus when firing mm -hmm. just at a building? And we went, no, because <laughs> it's yeah. indirect. We wanted that to be there because it sort of shows that the, the crews firing indirect. Um, when they got really in sync with uh, their weapons and the spotters that they were working with and um, the types of ammunition they were using and the terrain they were in, even the climate would affect shells and velocities and speeds. Mm -hmm. So when crews were well-versed, they could get shots on target a lot faster and they could zero in a lot faster than regular crews or crews that were fresh to the theatre. Mm -hmm. So we really wanted, and again, as I said, you know, like you tell me, why would I take an inexperienced, uh, a veteran um, Nebelwerfer team? Why would I take a, a veteran or a regular Nebelwerfer team over an inexperienced one? I know I would, but I take them so they're more durable. But I know that's oh, not yeah. always the most popular opinion. Yeah, no, no, that's fair. But yeah. if if you're hiding, well, regular you take because you can get a spotter. Right. Right. But why would you take it veteran over you? Do you take them veteran over regular? I do, but I you know do. that I'm not always uh, seen as taking the most optimal, optional, you know, optimal list. Exactly. But... You're you're playing to theme. You're playing to theme. I am, and I like that. I like that. I do like yeah. that. But I don't want you to be disadvantaged on the table because you're playing to theme. That's yeah. that's the point of these rules. We I don't want just... someone to. We don't want someone to be disadvantaged because they want to play a theme. And if someone wants to pay the points and get the advantage because they want the advantage, it's just a new option in their plethora of options to make a competitive list. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, we have gone through the player pack. We've talked about, you know, all sorts of the way you've tweaked the pack to suit the theater, to suit the event itself, to allow players to really tune in to Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily. But we haven't really gotten into one of the most exciting parts of the event. And I'm sorry to say the event itself is really exciting, but the venue of the event is something that is true, truly remarkable and special. And there are very few places on the planet that have bolt action uh, events like this. Um, can you tell us about the setting of your event and what is going to be standing around your players? We did mention it earlier, but I think it is definitely worth a giant underline under and some highlighting and some neon signs pointing because this is an event that is unlike almost any other that anyone will have the chance to play yeah so long story short we're at a tank museum we get to play around tanks so yeah. that's very cool um with the event we're not 100 percent sure on where the setup is going to be um whether we're actually in the process of building a designated space for our local wargaming community in the museum. So they'll have their own designated area on the mezzanine floor, which has yeah. panoramic views over the entire museum collection, 
which looks really awesome because you play That's and then you turn around and there's a giant, you know, 203 millimeter pion uh, to a seven gun pointing straight at you. There's a battery of World War One guns just underneath you. You know, it's a beautiful and really fun atmosphere, but we're yeah. not sure. We're going to wait and we're going to see how the tickets go. Um, we expect to sell all our tickets. We've only got 20. Um, yeah. But we, we want to see what the players want. Because if the players want us to drag the tables down and stick them out in front of the tanks and we find an area in amongst the exhibits like we did with Sandstorm. So Sandstorm, mm -hmm. we were next to the ISU-152, um, mm -hmm. the T-3485, and we are backed up up against an M3 Stuart. And we are surrounded by Soviet artillery, which was very cool. Um, awesome. But we want to find out what the players want. So if we get to you know, a couple of weeks out from the event, we go, hey, guys, do you, we want to play on tables surrounded by exhibits or do we want to play in a nice designated space that's just for us? Um, so, you know, we, we don't have to worry about, you know, members of the public or anything like that. Um, give the players that option because we want them to, A, feel comfortable and, B, have their choice of how they want their experience to be. Um, awesome. The museum itself is 227 floor exhibits now. So that's the big things like the howitzers and the tanks and the armored personnel carriers. 112 tanks, um, which is a pretty, pretty good number. We're happy with it. Yeah. We're, we're still going up. We've got about 35 more exhibits to come in the next two years scheduled. But the boss gets bored and he buys extra things because he thinks they look cool or they're a good deal. So normally it's like two or three extras a year. Um, we also have all of our smaller displays. So we've got everything from landmines to Panzerfaust to Panzerschrecks. Um, we've got a giant... 305 millimeter mortar round from Corihidor in um, the Philippines, you know, at the Bataan Peninsula, where the Marines yeah. held out against the Japanese. We've got ammunition cupboards downstairs filled with every kind of shell and shot you could imagine. Um, and we've got cupboards full of guns, cupboard, gun cupboards full. So we've got the glass partitioned air conditioned display area underneath the museum where we have our on site shooting gallery where you can shoot World War II rifles. So I'm a range instructor. So we do Mauser, 303, Springfield um, is my favorite, I think, um, Mosin Nagant, things like that. And then you can come in as a member of the public. You don't need a license and we'll let you try out a little piece of World War II history. Um, but down there, we have MG32s, uh, MG42s, MG34s. Um, we've got Sturmgewehr. We've got an FG. We've got Vickers machine guns. We've got a Vickers K that arrived the other week, which is really cool. I do love the Vickers Ks and That's just walls cool. full of rifles and some mm -hmm. machine guns. It's just great. This little nerd haven for all of us that like the historical wargaming. You know, when we get into wargaming, we, we, everyone that's in wargaming has a little bit of the historic interest because, you know, it's something that they can relate to. And mm -hmm. so to be able to play a historical game in a historical setting of the campaign that we're going to do in a historical location surrounded by history. It's sort of like compounds on compounds on compounds, and it's just a really incredible event. That is amazing. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine how good that would be to uh, to play. I know that the, uh, the U.S. Um, World War II Museum in New Orleans had a small event, but nothing to the scale of yours, and it was next to, I think, one tank and one half-track. What you're describing is a whole whole different kettle of fish um oh, yeah. I, I have to ask alex with um with that collection at your fingertips day to day uh so to speak uh you gotta have a favorite i uh, do have a favorite i really do and it, and it makes people very upset because 
nine times out of ten, when people come to the museum and I ask them, do you enjoy the museum? They go, yes, yes, we loved it. Everyone says they love it. But I go, what was your favorite? And they, I get one of three answers pretty much every time I get Tiger Tank, mm-hmm. Panther Tank, or mm-hmm. German Tanks. Mm-hmm. It's one of the three. And I've got no issue with German Tanks. But as being someone that's around them constantly, I think they're very overrated. Um, so, and then they always ask me, what's your favorite? And I go, the Hargo. Oh, yes. <laughs> and they Japanese look at me and they go, the and they go, they go, why do you like that? It's a little yep. Japanese rust bucket in the corner. And I go, well, cause it's the luckiest tank ever. That specific one we've got, um, just very quickly, it fought in China for four years, wasn't damaged, went to New Guinea, fought against Australians, wasn't damaged was captured intact, brought back to Australia with thirty a group of 36 vehicles. The army blew two to pieces, ran the third over a landmine, and it got stolen by the guy who ran the army's test firing range, who then sold it back to the war memorial about 10 years ago. Um, and then the other 33, three were kept by the army for display, and the other 30 were given to war memorial, who sold every single one for scrap metal in the 1970s. Oh. They didn't keep any. That's why they had to buy the one that got blown up at the landmine back because they had none. They sold all of them. I'm talking Chiha Earlies, Chiha Lates. There was a Type 89 in there. There there was um, a bunch of Hargos, obviously, and there were a Mm -hmm. few T-Keys as well, and they scrapped all of them except for this one. As a Japanese player, it hurts me to hear that they sold, um, you know, Australia's only Type 89 for scrap. That that kills oh, me a little bit right there. There was a lot. There was a lot of really cool gear there. Um, but luckily, for this one Hargo, it was a batch of about five that went to one scrapyard um, in Victoria, I'm pretty sure. And the story goes that they arrived at the scrapyard in the morning. They worked on them all day. They were going to do them one at a time and strip them. But one of the guys was sick. So they only got through four of them. They were leaving the fifth one till the next day. They locked up the yard and left. A guy drove past, saw it, called his friend, who was a guy called um, Monty Weld, who lived up in New South Wales. He was a cartoonist for the age, I'm pretty sure it was. But he was a massive military collector. He served during the Second World War in the Pacific, and he had a massive collection of guns mainly, like howitzers and artillery pieces. Mm-hmm. Like He went around to all of the scrapyards in New South Wales and Victoria and saved all of these pieces of artillery that councils sold for scrap metal. Like, you know, the, the Morsa, the 203-millimeter First World War German siege cannons, you know, the mm-hmm. big ones? There are only three left in the world. We have one at the museum because he saved it because Manly Council sold it for scrap. Unbelievable. You know, he he saved about 14 pieces of artillery alone and the Hargo, which was very lucky for the country as a whole. But mm-hmm. his friend called him and said, there's a Hargo here. You have to get down here. So Monty jumped in his truck drove overnight to get to Victoria before the, because this is before mobile phones, Right. drove all yeah. the way to get to the scrapyard before it opened in the morning, got there as they were unlocking the gate. And he said, I will pay you whatever it takes to put that on the back of my truck. I'm taking it home. And he did. And he took it home. And if you actually Google it up on Parfait, they actually have a TV recording of him in his backyard with his kids playing in the Hargo back in the 1970s which is really awesome. So it's got a really incredible history. It's it's a bit beat up because it was in someone's backyard for 40 years, 50 years. So mm-hmm. the tracks are seized at the bottom and split. Um, 
the whole floor is completely rusted out. We'll have to replace it. And all the asbestos paneling is completely degraded. So we're going to have to pull all of it out. Mm. But that's going to be a really exciting one because we are going to fully restore it to running condition. We have the original engine in there, all the original components. Um, I personally ordered the track for the museum. That'll be with us in about a month. So we're actually going to strip the track off. We'll clean it up, break it apart into pieces, and we'll probably sell that as fundraising to pay for the restoration of the vehicle. So I'll give you a call when that happens. I'm sure you'll give us a call back and try grab a link. Oh, yeah. But that's, that's amazing. Good. Yeah, that's got to be my favorite vehicle by far in the museum collection. But we have so many outstanding ones. You know, some of the German stuff's incredible, like the Hummel slash Nashorn, because it's mm -hmm. probably a mix of both. There's shots straight through the, the driver's compartment that would have killed the driver instantaneously. And there's about three holes. And the Panzer 4D fought in the Battle of France and was knocked out. And the crew were all killed. And then took it back to Germany to use as a training model to show tankers, this is what happens if you get shot at. Don't get shot at. Yeah. And then it got buried under a highway and it got pulled back up and it's completely original all running. You know, we have some really incredible exhibits, like the, even the most modern one we've got, say, um, a Jackson that fought in Yugoslavia. And it's been hit by an RPG-7 that's gone straight through the the um, gun mantlet and through the turret and exploded inside the vehicle. You know, some of the stories that our vehicles have are just incredible. Yeah. So what we try, what we will try to do again this year, and we did with Sandstorm, is because there's only so much the information boards can tell. Is I do mm -hmm. offer to walk around with anyone who wants to listen to me ramble, walk through the museum on on one of the nights um, in the twilight, and I go through all the vehicles and any interesting facts and information I have about the exhibits in front of us, rather than just you know this is a Panzer IV, it fought for you know thirty or it fought you know there were thirty thousand of them and they fought here and here and there and whatever mm -hmm. and the difference between this model was this and that. I'd prefer to go. This is our um, this is our Rover armored car. It got pulled off the Puckapunyal range. You can see where shots have bounced off it. You know, you can see where it's been penetrated here. Or go, this is our S1 scout car, which the Americans commissioned Australia, Australian Ford to make so that they could patrol airfields in Australia. The Americans patrol their own airfields against Australians because they kept breaking into the airfields to steal American stuff. You know, there's, there's know fun that. things like that. No, you didn't know that? <laughs> they commissioned the S1 armored cars our scout cars because Australians kept breaking into the American bases on airstrips to break into the the PXs and yep. steal cigarettes and stuff like that at the PX stores because they couldn't get it any other way because yeah. the Americans started to sell all the stuff from their PXs to the Australians who were on rationing at massively inflated prices. So the Australians yeah. started to just rob the PX stores. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that kind of you know more detailed you know walk through and personal experience that we do like to offer so yeah. if you do come along uh, you can listen to me talk like this for about an hour about really? all the things i find really cool um i mean that's, you don't have that's to worth the price of admission right there well that's we don't amazing. offer tours so it's, it's, a, it's it is a bit of a unique experience i'm not trying to pump my uh, toot my horn but we don't offer tours um, as a standard. We sort of let you have your own experience, which is a good mm -hmm. thing, I find, for most people. But if you do want that um, personal sort of curatorship of what you're seeing, um, we do offer that for one of the nights while you're there. That's awesome. Well, how can people sign up for this? Where can they find information about Operation Husky at the Australian Armor and Artillery Museum? 
so if you check out the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum's website, uh, so it's ozarmour.com, A-U-S-A-R-M-O-U-R, uh, and go to the events tab, you'll see Operation Husky listed there. So underneath that, uh, you click on that, it'll take you through to the event page on the website. Um, tickets are available there, so that it does designate access or allied ticket. If you do purchase a ticket, please do email me immediately with what army you decide to bring, especially with the allies, because, you know, I'm going to have a hard cap at five Americans and I'm going to have a far hard cap at five British Canadians. So if I get five people say they want to play American and you're going to be the sixth, I'm going to have to politely ask you to play Commonwealth so that we have those equal numbers. Yeah. Um, so make sure you do email and also do check out the players pack. It is available on the website on the event page. We have it gone is. through it, but it's got some cool photos in there and some really cool information. It really does. I it's, you know, not every player pack is uh, always enjoyable to flip through, but this one is a good one. Um, guys, if you have not checked out uh, operation Husky and you have the capability to get up to it, um, it like, this is an, this is a tournament slash event slash gaming weekend. Unlike any other, it is absolutely worth the time to check out. Um, even if you're not sure, take a look because it is, it is really tempting and I'm fighting some urges right now. I'm telling you, <laughs> but, well, we forgot um, the date. We forgot the date. It's the yes. 29th, 30th of April. So it's the very tail end of April. Uh, it's the May day weekend. So it's the Saturday and Sunday of the weekend. So you have mm -hmm. the Monday public holiday to travel home. Oh, the temptation deepens. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It has been an absolute pleasure to hear about this event and to, uh, to, to talk about how you can cater an event to a particular part of the war. And I think that, you know, while those are, that's done in some places in the world, we don't see it all that often in Australia. And God, I hope we see more of it because it just really does lend itself to interesting, different bolt action experiences that just keeps the game young and fresh. And it's just really great to hear you've taken over. And um, again, the venue is like no other. So thank you again for coming on, man. Oh, no, we're, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, you know, and a probably more succinct way to say it is this is a love letter to history. You know, we want this event to be somewhere where people come along and they, they get to feel like they're involved and they also get a more rewarding experience for the efforts that they've put into their armies. Like, gosh darn it, if I've, if I've spent 100 hours painting up all of my Italian um, parachutisti, which I'm doing right now, I want to mm -hmm. play Americans. I don't want to play Russians on a winter table, please. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like we want this to be something with so much flavor and so much atmosphere that you come along and you walk away feeling just overwhelming satisfaction in all senses. Like we expect, you know, a lot of people to walk away with a loss because, you know, only one team can win. But we yeah, expect exactly, people right? to to walk away even with a loss and just be so happy with their experience that they just are glued to their phones waiting for next year's operation dying reich so we've got some really really fun things planned so this is sort of our, our new test format and then next year is going to be a really big event as well so i love the casual the casual throw to the big you know ooh, and if you don't ooh. Can't make this one <laughs> check out the next one you gotta you gotta try the next one if you can't make this one because the yeah. we're gonna try keep them once a year we're gonna try keep to this weekend and the historical format 
Um, mm -hmm. But we've got some really fun things planned in the future. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again, man. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to Cast Ice. As always, we do appreciate that you've taken the time to listen to the show. And as our buddy Casey always says, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. And that track